Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Ed Smith. Ed is the Managing Director of Norvite Animal Nutrition Company Limited in Aberdeenshire, Scotland. Ed, welcome to the programme. It's great to have you on the air with us today. Uh, thanks very much and uh, it's it's uh, nice to be uh, asked to be involved. It's um, a pleasure having you, Ed. Now, the purpose of this podcast, of course, is to um, really look at leadership and bring that into focus. And leadership in the current climate is really being put to the test in the business environment, isn't it, with business leaders trying to navigate their firms through this COVID-19 crisis. Tell me, for somebody in your industry, how has it been trying to direct your business through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been quite the challenge. Uh, it certainly has, and uh, it's uh, a situation that seems to be changing almost daily. Um, I think we are um, uh, feeling incredibly uh, lucky, actually, in some ways, that we're in a primary industry uh, where we're part of the uh, the, the food chain, um, and it, it, in, in times of crisis like this, it, it, it is probably one of the more fundamental industries that has to keep going. I would certainly um, agree with that. And um, how um, have you personally responded to this situation so far? Have you ever come across any challenge like this in your career before? <clears throat> nothing nothing like this at all, no. Um, we, uh, I think we started by looking at contingency planning for um, uh, to ensure that our production facilities were uh, able to keep running, because at the moment we're, we're uh, and still are really right in the middle of the calving and lambing season, which is the critical part of the year for um, mm. our customers, livestock producers. Um, so keeping our plants uh, operational was uh, was 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 one of our um, main. Um, uh, uh, issues to 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 start with, um, given that we didn't know if people were going to get ill and be unable to uh, un- unable to operate. I can certainly imagine that that was uh, quite the challenge, and it's often said um, about uh, what's going on at the moment that it is unprecedented times, and people have never seen anything like this, and it's been a huge learning curve for business leaders as well. Um, is there anything that dealing with this crisis has taught you that you can take forward from here? Um, I'm not sure really. Uh, we, 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 uh, we haven't really had time to, uh, reflect on it. I mean, it's just dealing with, uh, things as, as they, uh, as they happen. Um, we're grateful that we've, um, got the continued support of our customers and, and unlike the, um, what we've seen, I think in, in the retail sector, we try to uh, reassure our customers, our farmer customers that, um, we had, secure um, local supply chains in place so the supply of product wasn't going to be a problem um, we hoped Um, and so we haven't seen the sort of stockpiling and panic buying that um, uh, would have put extra uh, pressure on us Um, but uh, that is you know situation is probably starting to change a little bit now because we we rely on a lot of we're up in the northeast of scotland um and we rely on um uh haulage 
um, mostly backloading of lorries who are delivering uh, timber to construction companies in um, the south of Scotland and, and, and parts of England. And that is becoming harder to source now because obviously there's no materials or a lot less materials traveling south now. Mm. So you can see that uh, as, as the economy uh, contracts and slows down, that um, supply chains are going to be uh, coming under more pressure. I can certainly see uh, where you're coming from uh, there, Ed. And um, with regards to how um, the um, country at the government level has responded to this pandemic, we've seen in the UK and we've seen across the world some very contrasting responses, haven't we, uh, thus far? Because we look over at Italy, for example, Giuseppe Conte, the Prime Minister there, they did go into lockdown very, very quickly, whereas we very much were a little bit slower to bring those sort of more um, harsh measures, I suppose, into place and really triggering the UK lockdown that we're um, undergoing at the moment. Um, if we sort of take those two approaches away from politics and away from times of crisis, um, in terms of your leadership model, Ed, do you prefer to dive straight in and get on top of difficulties when they happen as soon as possible? Or do you tend to take a backseat a little bit, see how things play out, and then really tend to take action from there? That's a difficult one. Um I think that probably my approach is is uh, more uh, pragmatic. Um, you know, trying to get the, the the best outcome to a situation to a situation uh, as as it as it unfolds. Um, I, I would say that I probably don't uh, dive in and and uh, overreact because sometimes you can make it worse if you do that. It's a very fine line, isn't it, um, being proactive and being reactive? Because you can be proactive, you can have plans in place and measures in place. But if you're a little bit overzealous with diving in and trying to get on top of things, as you say, sometimes you can sort of aggravate the situation and make it that little bit worse. Whereas sometimes maybe it's better to just sort of take a little bit of a backseat and be a little bit more reactive as a leader and take a much more measured decision. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that people um, are that your staff around you and people around you are looking for you to be probably to be calm and and and, and not panic because that sets off um, that that can set off uh, panic uh, around you as well. So I think you, you you know if you can sort of remain calm and just try and and, and deal with things um, in in as measured a way as possible, uh, whilst you know, making sure that people understand that you you realise the severity of the situation, then you know that's probably the approach that, that, that we've been taking. Very much lead by example, then that isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, we've got. Uh, I've actually spent, and the reason I couldn't speak to you uh, last week is uh, we've got um, uh, a number of people uh, off work for um, various reasons. No, nothing to do. Thankfully, with the uh, uh, the COVID nineteen, but uh, so I've I've had to be working out in the uh, plant um, with my boiler suit on for the last uh, three weeks, which has been quite good fun and uh, um, uh, hard work. But um, you know, certainly trying to get stuck in with the guys and um, and and, and uh, help help out where I can. I think that's quite good for a business leader to do that, to kind of um, not be hesitant to sort of get onto the same level as their employees, really be willing to get their hands dirty and really lead by example. Um, I think, to be honest, I mean, um, it's part and parcel of being a good leader, isn't it, being willing to do such things? 
Yeah, it, I mean, it's also useful that uh, you, you can see what's happening and uh, sort of question why some things are happening as well sometimes. So we've we've actually uh, um, taken the opportunity to uh, change one or two things uh, that we were, we were just been doing by rote for for years and uh, streamlined uh, one or two of the processes in the in the plant. So so it's been quite useful from that point of view as well. Certainly sounds like it's been a useful experience. Um, we've talked about, of course, your leadership style, Ed, as being quite a, a pragmatic one um, so far. But what would you say have been some of the influences behind that leadership model throughout your career? Um, well, uh, when when I uh, um, uh, arrived at Norvite uh, just over 20 years ago, we, um, my boss and uh, latterly one of our um, non-executive directors who was a great uh, influence on me um, was uh, had a very pragmatic approach to things nothing was a problem it was everything would get done <clears throat> and um, uh, he was he was a big influence um, uh, on my career he uh, Alistair Perry sadly who uh, died last year um, but uh, I, I, I think that I've learned a lot from him over the years about the fact that you know everything's possible it's just you know um you might need to sit back and think about how you're going to do it but uh, there's nothing nothing is impossible and i think part of being a leader is just that isn't it being able to have an influence on uh, those who are coming through the ranks the next generation of emerging leaders as it were and really be an inspiration to them um, it's hugely important isn't it mm-hmm. yeah yeah and quite interestingly, with those examples as well, um, you have named um, some individuals there who aren't necessarily people within the public eye, because we do, when we think of leaders, often get tempted to think of people who are celebrities, politicians, sports personalities, essentially people within the public eye. Whereas good examples of leadership, um, especially in the business environment, can often go under the radar because they are working behind the scenes, as it were. Um, if we consider that for a moment, Ed, um, do you think that good leadership is as recognised as much as it should be in the UK? Um, probably probably not, no. Um, there, uh, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of really amazing people out there who are just actually um, amazing in the workplace um, and, you know, truly inspirational, but they're quite shy and um you know quite humble and they 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 just don't think that what they're doing is anything extraordinary or or unusual it's just uh it's just what they do and you know there's a lot of people there's a lot of people uh, uh in the world that are like that I think that's a very interesting point because I think we are tempted to think of leaders as people who are always confident, always very bold and brash and willing to sort of address those around them. But sometimes leaders can very much sort of take a little bit of a backseat, can't they? Be a little bit more quiet, a little bit more measured, but almost the brains behind the uh, the operation with everybody working around them. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, you know, some people just uh, like to stick their head above the parapet in a... In a um, you know, in a in a in a public sense, um, but there's uh, but there's lots of people out there who are um, who are you know people respect who who don't sort of shout from the rooftops about what they're doing. 
And I think um, it comes down to that um, key word, humility, that doesn't it, which I think is another really important aspect of being a leader. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, uh, I guess the difficulty of, of uh, always having of being out there and, and, and shouting about what you're doing all the time is that uh, you've got to um, you've got to keep it up, and um, you know, uh, it, I guess it can be it can sometimes come back to bite you if you're not because no one's right all of the time. Absolutely. It's important to remember that as human beings, we are indeed fallible and um, leaders themselves are going to have their own limitations as well. Because I think leaders can sometimes come under a lot of pressure, can't they, to have all of the answers all of the time. And it has to be realised that they're not always going to get things right, are they? It's still very much a process of learning on the job, as it were, maybe getting things wrong, making mistakes and then learning and developing even as a leader. Totally. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, admitting you were, you were wrong, but um, putting it right and showing, demonstrating how you can put it right afterwards, I think that's what uh, uh, people respect. Um, because, you know, you sometimes do have to um, uh, make decisions which you're not 100% about. Um, and, you know, if it's if it's not the right thing to do, you've got to you've got to go back in and and uh, and turn it round. I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying there, Ed. And um, if we think about the experience that you've accumulated in business over the last twenty plus years, um, if you could give any advice to the next generation of emerging leaders, what advice would you give them? Well, I think uh, to um, not be afraid to take a few risks. Um, you know, we, uh, as long as you are, um, uh, you, you, you're taking a calculated risk, um, and, uh, you know, it's not going to be, uh, ruinous if it doesn't work, but I think people have got to be, uh, <clears throat> confident to, to take a few risks and, um, just, uh, challenge yourself all the time, um, you know, it's 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 sometimes easy, probably in bigger organisations, to um, you know <clears throat> hide 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 away a little bit and um, and and, uh, and and not uh, ch- and not challenge yourself. But uh, you know, in a smaller company like ours, we're we're looking for people to show initiative, um, and when they do, those are the people that we tend to push on and um, give more responsibility to. And generally, generally, if uh, they're of, of that um, uh, mindset, they, they thrive on the more you give them. And I think um, it's important um, to really have people getting out of their comfort zone and pushing the boundaries as an important step in their development, not just as an employee, but also um, on the road to being um, a leader as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I And I think that uh, if you can... The the, the the secret is um, when you can you've got people like that if you can make them feel um, uh, valuable and valued uh, then they 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 really thrive. 
I think that's absolutely right. And um, if we do think about the uh, the future before we do wrap things up um, on today's programme, Ed, um, do tell me what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Norvite and what you hope to achieve as a business in that time, and particularly in navigating COVID-19 and then emerging from the other side of the pandemic. Well, um, in the, two, the, the sort of two sides to our business, really. One is um, the manufacturer and distribution of animal feeds. And, you know, we're, we're kind of hoping that, um, uh, that that will remain fairly, um, uh, fairly, fairly settled in terms of um, the business that we can do. The challenge uh, will be because our sales team and uh, nutritionists and, and technical people aren't able to get out onto farms. We're going to have to just to um, come up some, with some uh, new ways of uh, of um, delivering advice um, and uh, product development uh, to to our the farming community. Um, the other side is our we have a retail business which has uh, three country stores and um, an online an online uh, offering as well and we've seen a, um, a huge drop in in turnover uh, there people are buying essentials and not buying um, clothing footwear etc that um, they would need to come into the store and try on so I think it's going to be pretty tough uh, for the retail business for well, the foreseeable future. Um, there's, there's uh, I, I guess the big unknown is, is, is when people consider it to be safe to be behaving normally again and, and, and indeed what the economy is going to be in, in, like in, in, in six months or 12 months' time because, you know, at the moment it's very difficult to uh, see the end of it and, and um, uh, you know, a customer base with some confidence and spending power. So I guess that is that is probably for us is, is the biggest worry um, and how we, um, how, how we might need to... Uh, uh, restructure our business on that basis. It is certainly um, uncertain times um, for business and um, it might um, be um, fantastic, um, I think, for the uh, listeners if we do revisit this in a few months' time once we start to see the fog lift and just see how the business is doing and how it has adapted in the wake of what's going on. But for now, Ed, I have to say it's been um, an absolute pleasure and really insightful having you on uh, today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today for the benefit of the listeners. It's been a pleasure and thank you again for asking me. It's been wonderful speaking to you, Ed. Thank you so much. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.